So we've come uh, in our uh, study of Jonah this summer up to chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, uh, three verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 uh, to 10. Uh, chapter 3 is a, a really unusual chapter uh, in the Bible, and particularly in Jonah, because what's happening there in Nineveh is a unique uh, and pretty unusual uh, occurrence, and so uh, it's worth our while to take a little time to look at that and, and think through what's, what's going on there and to make some application of that to what's uh, going on in and among us as well. So but before I read that text, let me pray, and uh, we'll jump in this morning. Lord, uh, we thank you today for this picture that we see in this text of uh, the humbling of Jonah, really is humiliation, and uh, the humbling of the people of Nineveh from the king uh, down to uh, the poorest and lowest among them. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would do that work among us because we are a proud uh, uh, people. Uh, We think very highly of ourselves. And so I pray that you would help us come to grips today with uh, the truth about us, uh, the truth about you, and uh, that you would give us the gift of repentance. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jonah 3, verses 1 to 10, that text Uh, is uh, in the bulletin also up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Get forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned aside from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So uh, it's, what I want us to do this morning is to ask the question of what is actually happening in Nineveh, what's going on there, and, and draw some, uh, some parallels between what's happening in Nineveh and what's happening to us. Um, and uh, to, to um, draw some, some conclusions about that, because I think there are a lot of parallels between the situation in Nineveh and the situation uh, among us uh, in the church, and particularly in our country, America. So as we do that this morning, I, I want you to uh, uh, think along with me along, uh, along those lines, because one of the things that you have to see about the text of Jonah and about what, what he's getting at here is that Jonah is going uh, to a city, a very large city, and the way um, uh, the, the uh, ESV uh, translates it, that, uh, uh, that great city call out against it. So uh, that 
the, when the city is called, it's translated here, great, uh, that really what's being referred to there is the fact that Nineveh loomed great, was large in the eyes of God. That Nineveh, as violent and oppressive and uh, uh, pagan as it was, Nineveh mattered to God. And so as we unpack that today, I hope that that is the thing that will, will uh, kind of animate uh, our thoughts uh, uh, about this. So the first thing that we have to see is we have to see the connection between the change in Jonah that leads to his ministry. So remember, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah, go preach at Nineveh. Jonah decides for a whole host of reasons that he's not going to do that. He goes down to Joppa, gets on a ship, uh, goes to sleep in the ship, the ship gets in a storm. The sailors end up throwing him overboard, and he gets swallowed by a fish for three days, for three days. And so uh, during those three days, as we saw last week, he repents. He, he sees the mercy and the grace of God. He uh, uh, understands, uh, as uh, uh, Wendell Berry writes in his book, Jaber, Grow, Jaber uh, Crow, that, uh, that Jonah had the opportunity for three days in the belly of a fish to change his mind. <laughs> that God said, okay, here you are in the belly of the fish. I'll give you three days to kind of think things through and to come to a different conclusion, and he does, right? So the, after three days, after Jonah repents, the fish vomits him up on uh, the seashore. Now, I want you to think about this. You know, when we read that, he's vomited up on the seashore, and the very next time we see Jonah, he's walking into the city of Nineveh. Uh, from where Jonah was probably vomited up on the seashore to Nineveh could be as many as 500 miles. So he had plenty of time to think about what he was going to say. Plenty of time uh, to reflect on what, uh, he had quite a few days, quite a few interesting experiences there, didn't he? And so as he, one of the things that you have to see about Jonah is that as he goes to to speak this message as he goes to finally obeying God, uh, he is humbled. I mean, he is, he's a different person in many ways than he was uh, at the beginning of the book. God's been at work in him. And so in so far as he is repenting, he is repenting. And I think what you have to say, one of the things uh, that you have to say about that is, is that Jonah's message of repentance, Jonah's message to the people, Jonah's threat of, of God's uh, disaster that he's likely to bring upon the people and his plea for them to, to turn from that has, has real resonance with him because he's just experienced that himself. And so I think that makes his message a powerful one. But that's not the only thing. That's not the only thing that's going on here. Secondly, what you have to see here is, is that this is a, a very unusual thing that's happening. First of all, this is a prophet. Now, you can read through you know, all of the Old Testament prophets, and they, they will prophesy against foreign nations. But you never see a prophet actually uh, commissioned to go to that foreign nation and preach to them. That's very unusual. That does, that's something that you, don't, that you don't see very much in the Old Testament. And so this is, this is a, a new and different experience that Jonah has as he goes and actually goes face to face with the people who are uh, the enemies of the people of God. 
So it's a pretty, pretty interesting situation that, that he uh, is experiencing. And then thirdly, when we compare the response of the sailors uh, in chapter 1 to the response of the people in Nineveh, we'll notice that there's some differences. Now, you may, it may seem like I'm splitting hairs here, but I don't think I am. I think, I think the writer here uses language in such a way to point out to us that two different things happened. A different thing happened to the sailors from what is happening to the people in Nineveh, right? So the first thing that you read about, that you note about the sailors, is that the sailors call on the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. They use the covenant name of God that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. They understand that now they are in a covenant relationship with this God, and they cry out to him using that language. If you notice the language that the Ninevites use, that the king uses in his decree, and the words that they use, they use the generic name God. So I think there is a difference. I think there's some, something different happened with the sailors than what's happening with the, the people uh, uh, in, in Nineveh. The sailors offer sacrifices. They, they understand that, that they have been alienated from the Lord, and as a result of that, they offer a sacrifice. They, they understand that there must be some kind of atonement for their sins. Now, what the Ninevites do is they, they put on sackcloth, they put on ashes, and, and they relent from the things that they were doing. That's good. Good. That's good. And I think what's happening here is um, that what the, the, the sailors actually became followers of the God of Israel exclusively. I think what's happening in Nineveh is, is that the people in Nineveh are suddenly realizing, oh, this God of Israel is a God who has power and he may be affecting us, so we should put him up there on the pantheon of gods, of all the other gods that we worship as well. Because, you know, if there are a lot of gods, you don't want to offend any of them, right? So, so if we've offended this one, let's, let's do something not to offend him, and let's give everybody the freedom to worship whatever god they want, right? So I think the, the sailors have come to an exclusive understanding of who the Lord is. Now, what's happening there in Nineveh as well, I think, is a, is a kind of civil religion, a kind of, of religion that, that takes, takes God or gods and says, you know, that's, that's a valuable and that's an important thing. But whereas the sailors are coming to the realization that there's only one true God and we belong to him and he belongs to us. We're in that season of the year, uh, the, the best season of the year. Uh, I, love, I love college football. I, I don't like it as much as I used to, uh, partly because it's just so corrupt. There, I said it. <laughs> uh, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. Obviously, your team's not corrupt, okay? Let me... Let me just say that to those who were immediately, I could see the hair standing up on the backs of people. Not, not the Hokies, not the Cavaliers. No, 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 it's those other guys. Well, whatever, it's all corrupt, okay? <laughs> In my opinion, that still doesn't keep me from watching it. It is disturbing to me that an 18-year-old can make a deal with a hamburger joint in town and get paid a million bucks, but, and that's not corrupt. But anyway, so, uh, so, so the fact is, it, you, you'll see these interviews with players. 
And I, I loved, and coaches, coaches are the worst. But I love watching, I love watching these interviews because, you know, if, if you have a team that you're a big fan of, you're dying and waiting to see the star player or the coach invoke the name of Jesus or God on their behalf so that you can say they really are the good guys. And I love it when these guys write, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on their shoes. I love that because, because you know, the, the Apostle Paul wrote that chained to Roman soldiers facing martyrdom. But they think, you know, they're comparing that to I can throw a football 50 yards because Jesus strengthens me to do that. Y'all don't think that's funny. I think that's hilarious. And so I love to see somebody talk like that. Well, one of the things that I notice is uh, everybody says, I want to give glory to God or, you know, God enabled me to do this. You almost never see anybody say, uh, Jesus is Lord. Because, you know, that's controversial. It's not controversial to say God in a generic way, right? The Ninevites are saying, you know, we take God seriously. The sailors are saying, this is our God, and we worship him only. There's a difference. There's a distinction that's happening there. Now, one of the reasons why we know that there's a distinction here is that the Ninevites, uh, they go through this exercise, and they do this thing, and God in his mercy relents from overthrowing them in 40 days. But what we know about that is, is that the Ninevites, uh, the Assyrian Empire, continued in its reckless and oppressive behavior, right? We know that that happened, and we know that they will eventually be overthrown by another oppressor, the Babylonians, who will ultimately be overthrown by another oppressor, the Persians, who will ultimately be thrown over by another oppressor, and another, and another, and another, right? So what we have to see here is, is that God in his grace and his mercy sees some change, some societal change that's happening there in Nineveh, and, and he takes the humbled prophet that he sent there, and he relents from sending the disaster upon them that, uh, that they had earned. And I think that's, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting thing here for us uh, 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 to think about. And the other thing that's interesting about this is, is that you notice that, the, the, that what the what causes the change there in Nineveh and what causes the change among the sailors is the clear declaration of God's word, right? So the, the change is a, is, a, is a direct result of the authoritative word of God. Verses one to three, you see the word of the Lord, the message that I tell you, according to the word of the Lord. Next slide. So Jonah did not become free to select for himself what he would say. He did not decide the content of his preaching. Thus, our witness is fast bound to the word of God. We have the promise that the word of God accomplishes the purpose of God, either to harden, either to soften, either to redirect, either to change, or even to convert. And what we see here in this text is that God does that, that he converts the sailors and that he changes the course and brings some mercy and grace to probably the most oppressive, wicked, power-hungry uh, place uh, up, and at least up until that time in human history, right? 
So what kind of place and what kind of people lived in Nineveh? Well, I would imagine that the people who lived in Nineveh from top to bottom, and as we'll see in this text, delighted in the power of Nineveh. They had a lot of pride, I would imagine, in being the dominant political and military force in the world. They liked it, as you would, right? And, but, but one of the things that we know about the Assyrian Empire is that it was severely oppressive. They loved to torture their enemies. They, they loved not only to defeat people and to spread their, uh, their empire, they loved to oppress them as brutally and as uh, violently as they possibly could. I could go into all sorts of terrible things that, that they liked to do to the people that they oppressed, uh, but that was, their, that was their identity. Now, one of the things that happens to us is, one of the things that, we, that, that uh, probably happened to the Ninevites that happens to us is that we think, right, that as we participate in a particular way, in a particular system, in a particular community, that somehow or other, that doesn't affect us. But one of the things that you'll note in this text here is when the king declares the, the, the time of fasting and the time of repentance, he says this, uh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Which, okay, there's a, we, we see a religious ritual thing that's going on there. And then he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hands. What an interesting thing to say. What kind of city was Nineveh? Well, for the king to say, everybody put on sackcloth, we're going to fast uh, from water and from food, and in addition to that, everybody needs to stop doing the violence that's in their hands. It must have been a violent place. It must have been a place where, where people, where, where, where there was uh, enough for the king to say, you know, we're in trouble. I think God was already preparing the ground for Jonah's ministry because people who lived in Nineveh must have had a sense that we live in a violent city. And of course they lived in a violent city. Why wouldn't they live in a violent city? You see, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that their, their participation in the system that was violent, their participation in a nation that was oppressive would, would bear fruit not only in their international relations, but it began to bear fruit in their communities, in their families, on their streets, in their neighborhoods. So if you have this attitude of violence and oppression towards everybody else, sooner or later, that's going to work itself out right in your own home right in your own place, right right where you live. And so there's a, you know, I'm sure there was no connection between what, what the, the king thinks there, you know, his, his foreign policy and his, his way of doing that. Suddenly it's coming home to roost that there is violence there in, in, the, in the city itself. And so what we see here is that Jonah comes and warns them about the wrath of God, that the city is going to be overturned. But the wrath of God is already at work in Nineveh. How do I know that? One of the things, you know, when we hear the words, the wrath of God, we think of an earthquake. We think of uh, a, a, 
uh, a pandemic, we think of a big event like that. But the fact of the matter is, God has structured the world in such a way, the creation is structured in such a way that as Paul writes in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. The wrath of God, his anger, his just anger at our sin and rebellion is manifest in the world all the time, not just in these big dramatic events. A case in point. God creates this beautiful, wonderful garden, and he places Adam and Eve in it. And they live in, in wonderful fellowship with him and with one another. They choose their own way. They reject the sovereign love and grace and goodness of God. They reject his command. And God warned them that if he did that, if they did that, that death would come. Now, they don't, they don't immediately experience death, but they do experience a separation with God, from God. They hide from him. Pretty soon, they're blaming each other. And then in the very next chapter, what do we see? One son kills another. Now, Cain is responsible before God for his murder of Abel. But the fact of the matter is, his murder is an evidence of the wrath of God being at work in the system, that when, when we choose our own way, that when we, when we ignore the clear word of God, when we ignore the, the, the truth of, of who we were made to be, of how we were designed to be, of, of what God's desire is for us, these things are going to happen. That, that, that part of the effect of that sin is not just that... that, that um, you know, that ultimately at the end you will have to deal with your sin, but sin has consequences and the wrath of God is evidence against sin right here, right now. And so God created the world in such a way that these things affect us. So when we're alienated from God, we become alienated from one another and these things are expressions of that. It is mind-boggling to me that 20 years ago, a little boy sat on my lap and watched the news on September 11th. And 20 years later, that little boy is in the thick of it. How, how can that be? Now, we can, we can think about that and we can, we can say, well, you know, that's, that's about international relations and that's about this or that. But I am here to tell you that that is an evidence of the wrath of God being displayed in creation and in the world in which we live as a result of the enmity that, this, that, that happens. Now, I'm not going to get into the righteousness or rightness or wrongness of any of that, but you have to see that the world was not created to be at war. But this, this, the, the fact that we experience this sort of thing, the fact that these sorts of things happen, it's not just something that happens out there, it's something that happens in here. And so the Ninevites' kind of systemic and systematic oppression of others is beginning to manifest itself right in their own neighborhood. And so I think they already have a sense. The king, as he says here, you know, you need to relent from this violence, that it's already a violent, even though it's the most powerful place and maybe the most prosperous place in the world, there's already violence there, right? And so the kings and his nobles, even down to the animals, enact these uh, rituals of repentance. But the thing that is most important for them is let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence in his hands. Tim Keller says this, 
As we've seen, the Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. It was renowned for its injustice, imperialism, and oppression of other countries. Yet the text shows that the impulse towards exploitation and abuse was eating away at the fabric of Nineveh's society. It wasn't merely that the Assyrians as a nation were oppressing other nations, but individuals were violent toward one another, poisoning social relationships. The wealthy enslave the poor, while the poor strike back through crime, and middle-class people cheat one another. I love that paragraph because that's an equal opportunity offender, right? <laughs> because we, we see in that just kind of, you know, that, that the, just the, the cycle that sin leads us to. And that's an evidence of the wrath of God against our sin. And we're stuck in it. We're stuck in it. Next slide. So what are we to do about that? What do these people do about it? Well, they recognize, while wow, we are in trouble, and we'll take whatever this message of Jonah, the chastened prophet, and we will take him at his word. And so they begin to take God more seriously than they have. And God relents. There was no church in Nineveh. There, were no, there was no believing community already in Nineveh bearing witness to the goodness of God. So we're in a little bit different situation in the situation and the, the culture that we find ourselves in. But what are we to do? How are we to think? Well, I know this. I know that uh, we often lack power to affect, and by that, when I say power, <laughs> I'm talking about spiritual power. I'm not talking about the way we tend to think about power, which is leverage, right? The world's uh, approach to power. I'm talking about the power of death, to self and the power of sacrifice and the power of humility and the power of repentance. And so I think often what happens to us is we lack that power because, uh, true spiritual power, because we adopt the ways of those that we criticize and we adopt the ways of those that we are rightly critical of to accomplish God's goals. Every one of us, regardless of your perspective, can agree this morning on this statement, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Right? Now, we might, a fight might break out about why that is and who's to blame. Oh, I know a fight would break out over that. But, but the, the fact is... Uh, we, we would all agree with that. Well, I want to give you another statement to agree with. And it's this. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. You're not the way you're supposed to be. And I say that to you today to begin uh, to try to come to grips with 
uh, the nature of our problem. If Jonah goes to Nineveh, full of power, full of boastful energy, uh, without first being chastened and humbled, I wonder what is, how well his message would have been received. But as he goes, as someone who's been humbled and who has been literally vomited out on the seashore, do you think that changed the way he thinks about it? Now, it's a short-lived change, as we'll see next week. It didn't, it didn't stick. But the, 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 the truth of the matter is, for us, for those of us who want to bear witness to uh, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who see us stuck in this spin cycle uh, that we're in, there's only one way out. And that is for us to repent. Well, what about those people, the more wicked people over there? They need to repent too. But I know I need to repent. I am not the way I'm supposed to be. And so I think for the church, I think for those of us who want to bear witness uh, to, the, 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 to the truth of the gospel is that everything that I have, everything that I am comes to me by grace, that Jesus Christ is my only hope. And as Emily so wonderfully reminded us today, in the world in which we live, God is our refuge. And so that's where I want to hide myself. And that's where I want to go to be able to find the renewal and the life that will then turn me outward to love my neighbor. That feels so weak, doesn't it? It doesn't mean we don't rebuke. It doesn't mean we don't uh, address uh, the truth. And it doesn't mean that you can't even say, you know, if we continue along the way that we're continuing, the wrath of God will certainly be more and more manifest among us. But I know, first and foremost, the place for me to begin is myself. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And as God does that, as the Lord does that, as we see the power of the cross at work in us as individuals, then, then we have a way and a place to turn, to see God manifest his grace and his glory on our streets, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our county, our city, our commonwealth, our nation. Let me pray. Lord, we, we need a sense of this today. I pray that you would help us. We have much more in common with Nineveh than we know. And so I pray that you would give us grace today uh, to uh, repent, to change, to embrace you uh, as the only way, the true way, the sacrificial way. Lord, I pray that the cross would loom large for us, that the atoning work that Jesus did would uh, move us uh, in love to our enemies and move us to, um, well, in humility, uh, to own uh, uh, our own uh, sin. And so, Lord, as you do that, would you help us? Would you strengthen us and would you encourage us? And Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us love for one another as we struggle through that and, and try to sort out uh, what that means for us. And I pray that uh, 
uh, Lord, you would uh, make uh, all of us uh, humble prophets, prophets with tears, prophets with uh, uh, words uh, of uh, grace and mercy in the midst of a terrible and perverse world. Lord, um, you see and uh, you understand, and even those who are our enemies matter to you. And so I pray that you would uh, strengthen our hands. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So would you, uh, you confess your sins with me by the, the, using this uh, confession of sin that's uh, printed in the bulletin? Would you pray with me? Almighty and merciful Father, you created us for communion with yourself and one another, but we rebelled and made enemies of our maker and each other. We have despised your providence, doubted your love, and become a law unto ourselves. We believed that human wrath would work the righteousness of God, and so have taken matters into our own hands. Still, you remembered us, our God, for good. In your tender mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. He made there a full atonement for our sin, offering once for all the sacrifice of himself. We thank you that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, and deeper than all of our sins. Grant us repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we may desire what is good and gladly live in union with him. Amen. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, and though we have rebelled against him, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy.